Hey everyone, uh, welcome to a very special episode of the Ward of Corner Walker. Um, we decided to do it visually this time. We're we're coming back uh, from our COVID nineteen restrictions in Jersey. So, what better way for us to visualize a conversation on a podcast with myself and a very great friend of mine, Craig Seiden Schwartz? Thank you, Javon <laughs> Walker, for having me, and looking forward to this. So. Uh, so in the last three to four months, we've just been continually shut down. We couldn't come to the podcast studio. I mean, we've had this set up for at least a good couple months, but because um, I think we were planning on coming to the podcast studio one day and then the shutdown just happened, I think the day before. So we didn't want to do it audio wise and we wanted to get it like filmed and in person. So uh, what the hell have you been doing for the last like three to four months? I mean, what haven't I been doing for the last few months? Traveling the world, shaking hands with everyone I meet. No, I, <clears throat> honestly, I relegated to my home, uh, okay. watching a lot of TV. The fact that TV became boring is pretty sad to me. Um, but yeah, uh, nothing like those COVID commercials that uh, to keep <laughs> us entertained, right? They do, and they don't stop coming, and they don't stop coming. <laughs> Oh, uh, th- thanks for the nod. My wife's favorite song. <laughs> She'll hate that I said that. <laughs> so, like, what? So, like, what made it bad about the COVID commercials? <clears throat> it, it's just, it's. I think it's a constant reminder of what situation we're actually in. Um, I feel like every commercial had the same voice, and then you start seeing those hashtags alone together. So it's like <laughs> the narrations, the the breathy. In these troubling times, <laughs> you know, every commercial and and one of the one of the most solid memes I've like ever seen is kind of similar, whether it's COVID or Black Lives Matter. Companies be like, Black Lives Matter, here's 20 percent off. <laughs> like you feel that through the patronizing of the commercials, you know, like um, <clears throat> I literally saw one commercial that didn't do that. And I was so impressed by it. And I'm not a paid spokesman by this company, but <laughs> <laughs> I had to say this. Raymore and Flanagan yeah. had the best, most artistic commercial I've seen during this pandemic. Really? <clears throat> they didn't use that patronizing voice. They didn't use any of those punch words of, you know, in these troubling times. They didn't even push selling their product. It was it was so well done. I watched it. I rewound it and watched it again. <laughs> yeah, it the was, premiere com- of commercials. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was beautifully done. It, it was just like showing little clips of families living in their home and doing different things in their home with a nice narration, very uh, subtle and and poetically done without pushing an agenda or or reminding you of your situation. It, it, they didn't even sell their product. They literally just kind of presented a message and the message was be comfortable in your home. And then and they didn't say anything until the end brought to you by your friends at Raymore Flanagan. And I was just like it's, it was so tasteful. Yeah. Instead of taking advantage of the time that we're in, they're saying, hey, we recognize it, but still be comfortable rather than focusing on it. And it was right. so refreshing that I just I like wanted to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, you see the commercials and it's really like, hey, just because our brick and mortar isn't open doesn't mean your wallet should be closed. Like shop online, make us money, and then maybe you'll feel better like during this, you know, pandemic and, and at home uh, lockdown. But 
if Raymond and Flanagan says, look, we know this sucks. We know it sucks. You know it sucks. Let's just try to do the best. Like, we're not trying to ask you to come out of your pocket to help support us. Like, we'll we'll get through this together. Yeah. And, like, I, I completely see what you mean. It's like a one in a million type commercial where it's like, we're not trying. Like, our aim, our aim, of course, is to uh, our aim, of course, is to make money. But during this pandemic, health and mental sanity is the most important it's paramount because that's what's going to keep you going so that we can eventually get back to normalcy and stimulate the economy the right way again you know um of course they're a business they have to stay in business they have to sell a product but they did it the right way you know i i just i i appreciated that no no of course i mean it 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 makes sense as to how you find the one you would definitely find the one commercial that does it right (laughs) (laughs) and we all pay attention to the ones that don't that don't do it right but uh yeah coming from the covid 19 pandemic and you see it for as black lives matter i mean it's a it's a personal note for me because i think that the way that a lot of these corporations are approaching this situation is that they want to protect their profit revenue and demographic in my in my opinion i mean they they can definitely take a stance and show that they uh, are on the right side of this issue by supporting it, but they have to look at their bottom line at the end of the day. They like Nike, if they supported, if they started supporting and letting Kaepernick be their spokesman for, like a year or two ago, it's a significant loss in profits and revenue if they lose that one demographic. And the one demographic that they're focusing on is like the black community that, that buys the shoes, that shares the, me- not the memes, but like shares the posts or shares the social media posts by Nike. Um, and Nike would not want to piss off that demographic. Mm. And same with Michael Jordan, I guess, because Jordan brand, like that's a, it's a huge market for his brand. Um, and it would be absolutely stupid if these corporations don't take a stance on it. I mean, of course, it's for their bottom lines, but I, as an outsider, it makes sense as to why they need to do it because they need to maintain that demographic. They need to maintain <laughs> their bottom line at the end of the day, and it makes them look good on all three fronts. Well, and that's the thing. There's a very fine line between the need to say something because everyone's waiting for someone's public opinion and exploiting it. It's a very fine line. Yeah. And um, I think uh, Dave Chappelle in his latest special, 846, and of course, we know why he called it that of the exact time for yeah. that, that George Floyd. Um, but he talks about the 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 outcry for saying, well, you know, you're a public figure, you're a predominant black public figure, you know, say something. And he's saying, beautifully said in, in his latest special, I don't need to say anything. The streets are speaking for themselves. And I'm wow. quoting him. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. It, it, he has such an amazing perspective on things. And really, he's so passionate about, you You know what side he's on, you know what stance he, it is, but he still has, I'm going to introduce perspective that makes people think. And that's that's the beauty of what he brings to the table. This special, it's not a comedy special. It's shockingly, yeah, yeah. I would have thought he, if it hits Netflix, I would have thought it'd be a comedy special. Well, it's on YouTube, so it's oh. it's, it's not it's not produced, it's not uh, marketed, okay. it's not distributed. I, I I don't know the history behind it, so I could be speaking off terms, but but uh, it is on YouTube, and it kind of just popped up. Um, it it. it <clears throat> He, he did it for his locals in Ohio. Like it's like people in his neighborhood. They, they went to a park and he set up a stage and it looks legit like a performance. But he accidentally told two jokes 
he just went up there kind of not knowing what he was going to say and just spoke wow. for 20 minutes. Um, and so I was wondering how he actually did market it or how he w- presented it to the people that showed or, it, you know, if he even charged anything or if it was uh, um, just a charity thing that he, he fronted the, the creation of it just to get it out there. I, I don't know. I don't know the history behind it, but I know that it was for his locals and that it was just I- I'm just going to speak and say what's on my mind. And I'm telling you, it's just as compelling as any of his stand up that he's ever done. Oh. He, he is really just an orator of our time. Like he speaks, you listen, plain and simple, and you hear his perspective. It was it was really really great. Like just to get get someone's perspective on it, just to get you yeah. thinking about ev- all the situation. Like I don't want to say too much um, detail about it. I want it to speak for itself. Yeah, you know what I mean. But definitely, you got to check it out. No, no, I definitely will. It you know, um, <clears throat> I enjoyed his specials when like he was like in his 20s um for what it's worth and uh killing him softly like i enjoyed those um and then when he did his netflix shit which i actually have to give him a lot of credit for because he he turned down comedy central he wanted his own creative control like he ended up getting it like 15 years later but like he he does what the fuck he wants to do Mm -hmm. and his uh his last couple Netflix specials have been like fucking hilarious because <laughs> I love the OJ jokes, but um, you know, in his spe- in his last special where he was talking about the the transgender joke and like the subsequent criticism of it and like how he just took that and then did it again and then made it funny and apparently like the critics said that it might have been his best like special ever. Like it was <laughs> it was pretty good, but like when you're saying that he's an orator, he's he's trying to make jokes, but the the uh critical like impact of the jokes and what he's trying to say like it it it's pretty significant in a great way because he's not he's not trying to make insensitive jokes he's looking at the criticism out there he's debating as to whether it's right or wrong he's not telling the other side that is i don't think he's really telling the other side that is wrong but he's looking at from his perspective qualifying it and then if he's making it funny and that's what comedy is you know in a in a time and i remember we've had we've had these conversations before where you look at comedy nowadays and a lot of things that people can't say because it offends a lot of people and i mean if it's insensitive it's very insensitive and should not be done but the point of comedy and i remember you told me this the point of comedy is to take a sensitive issue and make light of it and make people laugh right right and i think that's where dave Chappelle was getting at when he did the transgender joke he he told the joke, I guess, in a previous stand-up special, and he was talking about his friend who was transgender, and then apparently, like, the the public just, like, went at him. They said everything at the special was funny, but the transgender joke was very insensitive. And then he said, look, my transgender friend thought it was pretty fucking funny, so if I feel like telling it again, I'm going to tell it again to a different audience. Well, the great thing about what he did was, instead of apologizing for it, which is what you know, most public figures are forced to do after yeah. the fact of anything coming out in this society. He doubled down on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the the balls to be able to do that and still do it intelligently and from like a, a well thought out perspective. Like, yeah. And it's just that's that's what makes him so great. And yeah. when you think about the series of specials on Netflix, he pumped out five specials in like three years. Yeah. Like how did he even have time to craft it that well? Like That's you said, true, yeah. he literally just has stuff on his mind. And when he speaks, he is able to make it funny. Like, yeah, that, that's beyond talent. He's, you know what? He's at he's at that uber level of like his historical ranking um, and, you know, public analysis of his his stand up comedy 
And he highlighted that in one of the specials. I can't remember which one it was. It was one of the five Netflix specials. But he told the crowd, he's like, dude, I'm Dave Chappelle. Like, you know, I can come up here, smoke a cigarette on set and like do what the fuck I want and say what the fuck I want because I'm Dave Chappelle. And like the crowd, like the crowd agreed with him. He knew it, but he was publicly telling people that I'm on an uber level of comedians and I could get away with getting laughs from the audience for shit that might not necessarily be that funny. It's just because yeah. I'm Dave Chappelle. Yep. And even, uh, I don't know if you saw his Mark Twain special, uh, the, when he accepted Maybe. the award and they were kind of showing cut clips of his stand up that weekend, but it was to like exclusive clouds of uh, crowds of, uh, celebrities. And like, I think the mayor of DC was there. Wow. He's, he's talking about his reaction to offensive things that he says in front of the mayor. <laughs> Like, he's hilarious. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> That's too like, funny. No commentary, just just awe, you know? <laughs> so, uh, let me ask you this. Now, one of my favorite shows, speaking of taking insensitive jokes and making light of it, um, <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite shows is Seinfeld. I know you're a big Seinfeld fan. Never heard of it. No, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> so, um... <laughs> What like what do you think is the one episode that they would not be able to do today if you had to pick one? You know what's funny? There was an episode that actually got banned. And although that was insensitive at the time, I feel like it wouldn't be the same level of insensitivity. Wow, in the reverse. Yeah. Holy shit. Okay. Do, do you know which one I'm talking about though? The Puerto Rican day, right? Yeah, exactly. The Puerto Rican exactly. Day. When he's actually stomping out the flag that's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fucking Kramer. <laughs> um, right, because it's so symbolic and yeah. uh, an obvious gesture that it's like, no, no, we can't show that. But think about it. They had the, um, uh, well, well, shoot, what was the famous line? Uh, not that there's anything wrong with it. Oh, the gay, the gay episode, right? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with it, yeah. But there was an episode in a season previous to that where, and I, I'm... Didn't come prepared. I, I don't remember the exact line or the exact episode, but where they were talking about, uh, oh, I, oh, when Jerry got his leather jacket and the inside was the pink candy stripes. <laughs> and he, he was, he had to get a switch because he was afraid of the image that it was too gay. The Friars Club? Was that the? No, not the Friars oh, okay. Club. Okay, it wasn't. Okay, it was. Um, that it was an earlier episode than the Friars. Club. I think I know which one you're talking about. Where yeah, he, yeah. he spent too much money on the jacket, but he didn't care because it looked good. <laughs> And then he gave Kramer his old jacket, and then when it got ruined, he gave him the other jacket as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now I remember. He <laughs> yeah, had the now. pink candy stripes, and he, he didn't want to. He didn't want to have that because it was too feminine. Or something. right, right. So it's like <laughs> something that's so subtle like that, but it's like that could be such an outcry now, or or, yeah. or maybe we accept it because it's old TV and it's just part of the classic uh, canon. Mm -hmm. But if that it was a new episode that came out, it wouldn't make it to, to air. That yeah, that's what I feel. You know? uh, no, I see what you mean. I mean, you know, through the down down the road, I've seen like a lot of episodes that I find that couldn't be put out today because of the content in it. And I think I think that Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld are like some of the best writers. Definitely Larry David is one of the best writers out there because he was able to, you know, do episodes like this that they pushed the envelope. They they tried to get as far as they could with putting content out uh on not cable TV, but like national national TV. Yeah, prime channels. time, NBC. Exactly. Like an episode about 
who could last the longest without masturbating, like, <laughs> and not using the word masturbate. Like, they they pushed right. an envelope or they created um, um, metaphors, right? That they hadn't created heard before, right? <laughs> and it's like it's 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 sign language as the is the term for it. So it's like if you use a, a word from Seinfeld, it's like. Um, are you still master of your domain, right? I'm and king of the castle. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and and they really immortalize a show by language like that. But uh, you know, I was I was thinking about the one episode where you know Seinfeld. You don't see many black characters, and there was an episode where I don't know if George was challenged, but apparently he somebody noticed that he didn't have many black friends. And oh, his so, black boss at, at the Yankees, right? Mr. Morgan. Yeah, right? Mr. Morgan. Mr. Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> so so his his job was to, like, look for a black guy? He, he uh, that's <laughs> back to me now. He, he told Mr. Morgan that he looked like Sugar Ray Leonard. <laughs> that's right. And that, oh, all black people look the same. And then he spent the rest of the episode trying to prove he had black friends and he didn't have any. <laughs> but But... The, <laughs> They did, they did callbacks, the episode where he went to that black family's house to watch the movie because right. he didn't read the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's genius, but like, you know, it, I don't know whether if Larry David wrote it or, or Jerry wrote it, but you you had the black supporting characters, even just like for an episode, you had them in the show. But the genius of the writing is that you brought them all back into one episode. So it's like... We had an episode with black people before, and then we're putting all the black people in one episode to prove that we actually had black people in there. Right. It's 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 they, pretty genius. They they go as irreverent as possible, and then they come back and prove that they're not. Right. And, you know, and it's, we, I mean, th- this has been on the table since when you first told me that you were going to do a podcast, and I was like, oh, I want to be on it one time. Right. I said our episode is going to be look to the cookie. <laughs> you know? The black and white cookie. Look to the cookie, Elaine. <laughs> that, was so, a, that was a really good episode. <laughs> but the symbolism speaks for itself, too, in a goofy yeah. way, but it's so true at the same right. time um, that the, the message was always there, that it, they, they're irreverent and they put themselves in awful situations, but like at the heart, they're, they're not against any type of humanity. They're just ridiculous people. <laughs> um, but, but kind of like on that that theme of balance and how they actually created the show. Uh, I, I still watch reruns. I, I stopped watching for a while. And then during, uh, you know, being at home and watching TV, I'm like, oh man, it's still on air. Right? Let me start watching <laughs> the show again. Kind of revitalized it. Yeah. Um, what I started to notice was, and actually I, I observed this before, but I think I like was cognizant of it this time. In all the scenes in Jerry's apartment, whenever there's three characters, they're all wearing one of the primary colors. So in every scene... <laughs> How the fuck did you yeah, realize Because I'm just that mental. But <laughs> yeah, someone's wearing blue, someone's wearing red, and someone's wearing yellow. Or like oh. two, two of them will be solid, and then the other one will be kind of a subtler tone with a pattern. But it, all three colors are represented. And then when I pointed this out to my wife, yeah. she said, oh my God, look at the logo. And I don't know if you've ever realized this. NBC? No, the Seinfeld logo. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. It's red, blue, and yellow. You two need to stay married for like 50,000. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Bouncing off one. That's yeah. pretty good. Wow. Yeah. So I, I don't know what the significance is. It is uh, 
maybe it's just pleasing to the eye and it helps relatability or if there is some deeper level of, of balance yeah. and, and connectedness. I, I don't know. But the fact that it really is there if, if you watch it again. And now when you watch it, you won't not notice it. Yeah, dude, that's wild. <laughs> <laughs> um, damn, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> the, you know, it, it's amazing how how high of a show or a pedestal like Seinfeld is put on and ass man that's pretty funny <laughs> that's pretty fun um it's amazing oh, cool. how, we got the logo up yeah. it's amazing how high uh how high of a ranking seinfeld gets where it's like they they completely tore down all stereotypes of shows where um they had a uh female major like a major character in the show that was female and was promiscuous she had sex with different people like she wasn't a housewife that didn't have you know limited lines on the show like and her career took off from there like she like what the like what Seinfeld also, was also her career in the show yeah she she was she was a predominant figure she was a New York socialite socialite yeah. um but yeah they didn't they didn't pander you know right. they, they said she she hangs with the boys yeah, that's a good point. Sorry, go on. No, no, you're good. <laughs> you're good. But like, you know, you, you're just thinking about how how it tore down different stereotypes where every every show before Seinfeld, you had to have a plot. You had to have like a, a reason for the show's existence. And like, I guess when Larry Dave was trying to pitch this at NBC, he's like, I ain't got shit, dude. Like, I don't I don't have a plot. I don't have an aim. Like, these are just four different characters, four different people inside one episode. They're all going to have separate little things. But it's not continuous i mean most of the shows i mean well, most of the episodes did not have a continuity and a link from one episode to the next like you could find some shit like george getting married or jerry dating a virgin but like for the most part there's no link between episodes it's really just like four new scenarios in an episode and somehow they intertwine yeah at it, the end. it was definitely still episodic yeah um but it was like it was a study in communication like you said there's no plot there's no storyline but like the storyline happens because shit's happening around them right. and that's the storyline. Right, right, but right. But the, the interactions that they have is, I mean, it, you have to know humanity and interaction with society to be able to write that. Absolutely. And uh, there was a brilliant uh, piece of dialogue and I, I think the first season, maybe the second season, but very early on where a character that we've never seen, Elaine comes in and she explains it to Jerry and it's something that everybody in the world knows and does and nobody acknowledges it or talks about it. Uh, she, she continually sees a stranger on the street, just in passing on the streets of New York. And they recognize each other and they start to nod to each other or give each other pleasantries over time. And eventually they start uh, to, to end that interaction. They don't acknowledge each other when they pass each other on the streets wow. anymore. Uh, and Elaine was so frustrated by it that she went and she's all she's only telling this to Jerry. You don't see this. But she goes up to the guy and says, I know we're not saying hello anymore. I I know that you're <laughs> not saying hello to me, but you still know who I am. I just want you to know that I recognize it and acknowledge it. <laughs> and, Jer and Jerry's response was, you're the queen of interaction <laughs> or oh, confrontation, you're the queen of confrontation. Yeah. Like. Those are thought processes that we all have and we don't actually act on them or vocalize them, but it's brilliant writing. And they vocalize it and put it in there. Yeah. Um, 
Oh my god, yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, let me let me ask you a question. How many? And you've seen many shows during your lifetime. How many shows have you seen where they make an episode about pitching, like coming up with a, a, a TV idea and pitching that to a select like channel, like television channel? Like I've never seen it. It's they're making fun of what they did in the episode like they pitched larry david pitched seinfeld to nbc he got the show about four or five seasons in like there was a there was a link in a couple episodes of jerry and george trying to pitch a, an idea to nbc like that's it's absolute genius dude it, it's the creation of meta tv yeah <laughs> they, he, he took his own experience and just recaptured it you know it, and and think about it he did it again on curb your enthusiasm when you know, uh, reunion television shows are a thing. They've always been a oh, thing. True. They they never had a reunion Seinfeld episode, but they redid a Seinfeld episode on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. And yeah. they actually they didn't do a full episode, but they did. You see the behind the scenes making of it, getting the actors together, agreeing to it, the process of creating it. And then they show like a handful of scenes that they're filming and you're watching it from the set, not from the show. But yet wow. it puts together a reunion episode within another episode. So they added a layer of being meta on a different show. <laughs> it's it's great. But like I, I like shows like uh, just it kind of in that vein, Community started yeah. to do that, another NBC show. But then Dan Harmon, he's the creator of Rick and Morty along with Justin Roiland. But you see the, those stages. So Seinfeld created Meta TV and then Community kind of like perfected it as an art and then now Ricky Morty takes it to just a whole irreverent yeah. level yeah. but like that that's become a whole genre in itself but yeah, I, I think that did start from Seinfeld question no so now that we're, now, now that we're um, talking about reunions what is your what are your thoughts on maybe reunions and bringing back shit 10 to 20 years after it happened like I'm curious for your for your opinion on the new Bill and Ted trailer. Like, what did you think of it? I did not see the actual trailer. Okay, I did see the two of them saying like, "Hey, something's coming. We are doing it." Right, and it was like, "Oh, okay, cool. Like, let's wait and see." Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, that's that's a good one though. Like, it that was such a significant one at a young age. Like, that was yeah. That was a, it was still eighties, right? 89 I want to say okay. the first one yeah okay. that or 1990 so I think. so yeah that was that was so like kind of bringing sci-fi and comedy together but for kids you know like, <laughs> so crates yeah so I wonder how they're gonna do are they gonna cater to that same style of humor or is it gonna be for that those kids that grew up now and are old like that's gonna be interesting to see yeah that's the you know what that's that's the biggest that might be the biggest challenge in terms of writers and producers getting together and coming up with a new a new a new version of what was there previously like you got um bill and ted like what are some other shit that they're bringing back like ghostbusters ghostbusters like are they trying to you know create nostalgic event like are they trying to bring back nostalgia for the older generation or are they trying to create something new for the new kids and i mean like you see it in horror movies like horror movies that was what they were doing 10 years ago um that was i'm not gonna say the peak That's but like that point. yeah that was the beginning of like when remakes were done and i think i guess horror movies were was the original like archetype for remaking stuff um you know growing up in the 80s you would see a slasher film every year you whether it was friday 13th whether it was nightmare on elm street whether it was uh halloween like you would see that shit every year and you know 
20 years later, you see that a new director comes up with something like Rob Zombie takes it over. He writes it out. It's not um, John Carpenter and all those people in Mustafa Akkad and 30 years ago. But like, I'm curious, like, what are your what are your thoughts? Like, do you think that they're trying to bring back the the original generation that watched it or are they trying to create a new fan base? Oh, I think that's the challenge. You want to do both, right? Yeah. You want to revitalize an existing franchise, but you want to make it new and fresh for people to take it over from there. We we were talking about this um, last time you were hanging out uh, yeah. at my place when um, what what was the example? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right? Oh, that's right. How the cartoons, the cartoons, Saturday, right. Saturday cartoons. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like you know, so the '90s kids have SpongeBob, which is a. Uh, Something from your childhood that lasts into your whole life that can be taken over by another generation and it's the same product. Like my parents with the Flintstones. Whereas my generation is the generation of reboots and remakes. So we yeah. don't have the original things that are still with us. We have the new version that's been redone that's taken over by the younger generation. So ours gets lost because the new is going to last. Yeah. So, but that, that would be the challenge to take the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, franchise and not make it a reboot, but make it a continuation for the new generation. That's a different avenue for that challenge. It's you know what, and and I'm I'm like I'm thinking about how how difficult it is for a company to do that. Take for instance Pokemon, right? Pokemon started in I believe 1996 and worldwide phenomena. Right. Like just Pokemon, Pokemon cards, Pokemon, well, trading cards, Pokemon video games, TV books, coloring book, everything, you name it. They never stop. I don't think they've stopped making Pokemon. There's always like a new generation that comes out, maybe like four or five years. And, you know, I don't have any kids, but like people that grew up in like the late 90s, their kids are like watching Pokemon. And it seems like they've completely separated the original like 150 Pokemon like now it's I don't know 600 700 whatever it is but I guess because they could continually bring out characters and make new characters and you're able to separate the old generation from the new new generation like for me I wouldn't really worry about 500 through 700 because like I just stopped watching it but my kids will pick it up from number 501 until whenever right, so right, right. they're able to I Maybe Pokemon or like maybe cartoons is like the the only type of uh, media industry or whatever where they'll be able to do that and not be able to get into a huge conflict. Like something like Star Wars, like we went to go see the last Star Wars. That's incredibly difficult. Like yeah. you take the 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 four through six, which was the best trilogy, um, and you wait on it for like. 30 years, you try writing out the script in a movie, and when episode seven comes out, you have the nostalgic fans that love Star Wars, and you have some fans that want to see a new story. So, especially when you get to the last episode that like we saw together, it's impossible to make everybody happy. Yeah, it's absolutely there, impossible. After 50 years, yeah. there, there's no conclusion that can live up to the hype. <laughs> <laughs> right. So like, you know, you, you and it's, it's I'm sorry, but it's I think it's also at that point, instead of a conclusion, you're going, OK, well, what's next? Because we're used to more. Yeah. You know, the and I think that's another part of it. Star Wars was such a classic on its own for so long before they started the continuation of it. Mm. So, but now we don't wait for that to, to settle. It's a couple of years. Wait, it was popular. Okay, keep building it. Yeah, you know, so so that 
there's no build of nostalgia anymore. It's just let's keep making. What's next? Yeah, what's next? I mean, from from critical standpoint, like looking at the looking at the reviews of uh, the Rise of Skywalker, and I think that the only conclusion they can have is we have to think about what's next. Yeah. <laughs> like we can't we can't leave the Rise of Skywalker like and think that that's the last thing. Like we have to we have to do something more. Because um, there were a lot of unhappy fans. Like I, I enjoyed the the action in it, but you know, just just seeing the amount of criticism of it, and I think that's due to social media. I mean, twenty twenty thirty years ago, we have to wait for Ebert and Roper to say something to like really realize, <laughs> oh shit, like they fuck they 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 were bad at doing this, and like nowadays you find everybody every common man's review on something, and then you say, oh well, that person's right. Okay, then Star Wars did this wrong, and like you 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 know. You, you, you can't think for yourself because, like, you see so many different opinions and then that's what you warp yourself into believing, you know? So, are you I, – I, I see where you're going with that. But um, are you saying that neutral opinion doesn't exist anymore because there's too much influx of here's your opinion? Whether – either because opinions on yeah. both sides exist. And yeah. Especially with, you know, the immediacy of posting everything and, and social media. So – are people influenced before they formulate their own opinion? I honestly believe so. Like, for for instance, right, the only neutral opinion that we could have about The Rise of Skywalker is going into the movie. It was a premiere, right? The only people it, that could see it. Well, it was day one, right? Right. We yeah. saw it on day one. We really couldn't have too many opinions for us to understand what to think. And right. the only people that would have an opinion were the ones that watched it at the premiere. So... From day one, news leaked out of how bad or what was wrong with the rise of Skywalker. Like you would see the reviews after day one. And if you looked at the reviews and somehow you, you didn't want to watch, you didn't want to read about the plot, but you wanted to see how the music movie was reviewed. And you see like it's like 50% or 60%. You're like, holy shit, that movie bombed. Yeah. And now you go into the movie like with that mindset where like you're trying to locate some of the some of the things that you see wrong in it. And I mean, that's that's just that's just what I think. Yeah, I mean, oh, well, I think it's it's easier to see the things that are wrong with it, or or at least that's what mm-hmm. we're trained to focus on. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> True. I I'm, I might be talking out of turn, but I feel like when the Last Jedi came out, it got panned. I I think I feel like actually Kevin Smith was the only one who put out like an hour and a half long review, uh, <laughs> and like talked about every aspect of the movie and talked about all the parts that he liked about it. Whereas in in general, it mostly got panned. And then when Rise of Skywalker came out, they started picking apart the things wrong with Rise of Skywalker and they started comparing it to, yeah, it wasn't uh, good like The Last Jedi was. It, was like, it, wasn't, it didn't do this like mm-hmm. The Last Jedi was. <clears throat> We're also used to Star Wars being a whole. The trilogy, the original trilogy made by George Lucas and his team. The, the prequels made by a different George Lucas and his team. <laughs> <laughs> but now the the new trilogy has three movies, two different directors, neither with with the middle one unconnected. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's so, right. um, what was it? Uh, was it Ryan Johnson? It might be. I forget. What he I forget. JJ uh, Abrams is one and three, right? J. J. I mean, Saber seven and nine. Yeah, right? it was uh, seven and nine. Yeah. Um, but uh, so Last Jedi took it in its own direction, not thinking it's going to be part of a trilogy story. Got it. Or he at least had an idea of where he wanted the story to go to. And then J.J. Abrams had to kind of like, 
bring it back a little bit. He says, no, no, I like where it went. And that, that gave me, you know, creative liberty to, to mm-hmm. come up with the conclusion. But let, let's be real. He tried to reel it back a little bit. And I think it shows. Yeah. And I think that's where the criticism comes from. Gotcha. So, okay. Maybe I'm wrong in this summary. Wide general audience says that the guy in the middle, Ryan, Ryan Johnson, if he did The Last, Last Jedi, he fucked up, right? You're saying he was trying to, he had his own creative freedom. He wanted to take it in a new direction. And then J.J. Abrams came for episode nine and said, hey, let's get back to the the trilogy mindset that we're, that we're used to making. Right. Interesting. Right. I'm, not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying anybody's wrong. It's just a different take on it. A different take on it. Right. right. I think as a standalone movie, The Last Jedi is brilliant. I loved it. It had... It, it it felt like the Star Wars universe, mm-hmm. but it didn't feel like the Luke and Leia saga. But it had elements that you have never seen before in a Star Wars movie, but it still felt like Star Wars. It just didn't connect the storyline dots that we wanted to see yeah, or that fans wanted to see within that saga. Um, and that's what J.J. Abrams tried to kind of recall in the third one. Yeah. Quite, I have a... Um similar topic uh, question for you now if episode 9 concludes the Skywalker saga how do you think episode 10 will be like how, like how do you do a Star Wars movie without reference to Skywalker that's a great question I mean <clears throat> do you make it episode 10 or you do you just call it the Star Wars universe wow. you know they they started with Rogue One which was supposed to be an independent movie fantastic movie it is pretty good it is pretty good but the tie-in to make it like a mini prequel or an introduction mm-hmm. into a new hope i mean that just it, it it ties it into the canon where you almost say well that's really episode 3.5 <laughs> true tree fitting right <laughs> not tree fitting <laughs> i didn't even mean to bring it there that's awesome <laughs> so uh no no i see i see so i see i see what you mean it's um you know, Rogue One for 95% of the movie was just its own standalone movie. Like, you, you see how it was somewhat tie-in, but, like, within the last five to ten minutes of the movie, that's where it has a direct link to right. A New Hope. Right. I see what you mean. Whereas Solo, I think, tried to do that, yeah. and it came up short. You know, he, he had his own solo adventure. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but but the, the kind of tie-in at the end was that, uh, what, it was the plans or... Or uh, the 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 fuel or something that they were trying to steal that he ended up calling back and and basically giving the rebels their ability to create their weapons and vehicles to fight the the empire inadvertently. Right, right. Um, it's like, oh, see, it's still part of the canon, but really, other than that little kind of line at the end, yeah, it was its own standalone adventure. Okay, got it. So, can they just make straight out Star Wars universe? storylines or Star Wars universe standalone movies without having it to tie into the Luke and Leia storyline. It can still be part of the the battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, I honestly the Mandalorian is doing a fantastic job of that. I can't wait till season 2. And I'm not, you know, breaking any barriers here. I think universally this has been championed pretty well, yeah. the Mandalorian, but it's it's a standalone storyline that exists True. within the universe of when the empire fell and, and it's it's doing it's a great job great job of that so it looks like from 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 the success of the mandalorian that they can that they can do it there is a uh possi- high level of possibility that 
you can have a Star Wars story and don't have to make reference to Luke and Leia. But are they going to make reference to like the Jedi or the, is the, the, the legend of the Jedi, is that going to die in whatever oh. that they do in the future? Well, I mean, I think that's part of the lore of the Star Wars universe. But it doesn't have to be directly. It doesn't even have to relate directly to Rey Skywalker or right. or, or okay. even or even Lando. And uh, I, I'm blanking on her name, but you know, is Lando her father? The the oh the 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 the, the stormtrooper, right? That, yeah, the yeah. Has, okay, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So they they kind of tease that, and they that that could be the next mm. movie. Um, you know, or what what are they going to do with that? Or are they just leaving it hanging to be like, hey, ponder this and create some fan fiction? You know, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um. So now here's a off topic question. If you've been like at home, like watching TV to, I guess, subdue the heavy effect of a pandemic, like how have you been not watching sports? Like, does it like drive you out of your fucking mind? Am I still shaking? Yeah, it's torture. I literally, uh, I, I, I've been watching any sports DVD I have, <laughs> like you know, Yankeeographies, the Giants championships of two thousand seven, you know, like <clears throat> anything that I can get my hands on. That's just I need a sports fix. I still listen to sports talk radio, and they're not <laughs> even talking about sports anymore. But I still. Oh my god! Is it all politics? It's a lot of politics. It's oh obviously you know social awareness type stuff. Yeah. Uh, a lot of stories related to sports, or okay. uh, you know, but the big hot button right now is the uh, the MLB negotiations, which I wouldn't even call it negotiations. <laughs> it's just rejection. Uh, oh my! Rejection is the perfect word. I feel like. I'm a child again going through my parents' divorce. Like, (laughs) I'm watching two entities that just can't get along, and I'm going, but don't you love me? (laughs) Okay, how's this? No, no, that doesn't work. No, draft up something else. Like, that's that's what it looks like MLB is doing. I mean, like, I go on ESPN.com maybe, like, once or twice a day, and about every three to four days, I always see that – the players reject some some offer. I don't know whether it's the players' association that draws it up or the owners, but like now it was. I think the latest one that just got rejected was a seventy nine or eighty one game season or ninety game season. I don't know what the owners were going to get, but it was been rejected by the association. I, I think I'm. Excuse me. I'm not even keeping track of the numbers anymore. <laughs> it's it's literally both sides are wrong. I think everyone's aware of that, but it's literally the owners floating out some agreement saying this many games, this much proration. Uh, and then the players just being like, nope, volley back to you. <laughs> you know, it, that's, this it. This doesn't that, work. It doesn't work. They, there, there's, I think they, both sides know what they each want and they're not talking to each other. They're yeah. just waiting for the other one to make a move and then slapping it back. And it's, it's, it's only putting, uh, you know, a dark mark on the sport itself. You know, <laughs> baseball is so concerned with um, are there too many seconds between pitches? Uh, are there too many pitching changes? Are there too many you yeah. know, foul balls ex- extending the game? But like they're forgetting that, oh, we just need a product on the field because people are going to forget about us. 94, there was the strike yeah. and it took juicing 
and a, 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 a historical <laughs> home run race to get people watching the sport again. No, you're right. 25 years later, we forgot already how volatile fandom ship is for baseball. You know, you have a, you have a historical record that lasted for 35 years and it took break breaking it illegally to get people to watch the sport again. What are they going to do if they don't put a product on the field this year? What are they going to do to get people back to watch the sport? The sport could be dying right now and I'm dying inside. <laughs> so I'm one person that would say baseball is a is a dying sport due to more due to the rise of uh, soccer, in my opinion, because more 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 parents are putting their kids into well, they're getting they're getting their kids away from football, but uh, baseball is due to I think a, due to attendance or like lack of attention to it. But uh, the the COVID nineteen shit is just it's a dagger in the heart of of Major League Baseball um, because attendance is generally down on a year to year basis. And the fact that the players and the owners can't come to an agreement for the sake of people that want to watch baseball, even if you can't go into a stadium because of social distancing guidelines, people still want to watch baseball. Like, I think you're you're one person that you don't mind getting home at like seven o'clock and watching like the seven to ten baseball game on like a Tuesday night. Like, oh, yeah. You want yeah. baseball. I want to see. It. I want to root for my team. I want to. You know, get into each pitch and figure right. out what's going on, the storyline throughout the week. Uh, I I want that. And, <clears throat> I mean, talk about Major League Baseball, whether it's the players or the owners, they're more tone deaf than Drew Brees right now. <laughs> this, this was... <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least Drew Brees came around, even under oh, social yeah. like oh, social absolutely. pressure. No. <laughs> They're not even doing that. No, nobody's saying that he's a bad guy. I like, but just like think That's about funny. what you're doing yeah. during this climate. You know, right, right. this was an opportunity to to win people back when there's no <laughs> other option, and you're and instead you're, you're pushing dead. people away. Right, like, right, right, right. So. <clears throat> Basically, they ha they have uh, new CBA um, collective bargaining agreements that their contracts end after this season, and they were going to be doing negotiations this time. Well, not this time, but like off season next year. Yeah. Okay. They're taking an unexpected work stoppage to just say, you know what, let's negotiate now. And so the CBA will be working for the seasons coming forward. Like they would rather just stop it now and work on the new agreement. <laughs> Sort of, kind okay. of, kind of informally. Okay. So they're saying because we have a chance to negotiate terms now, we're like, well, if I agree to this, then I might not get that back at the end of next season when we do our official negotiations. And I think that's where the creation of this mistrust is coming from. Mm, interesting. Um, now I've seen, uh, like I said, I only see the headlines of like the negotiation of what's rejected and like what's put out. But it looks like I don't know whether it's Max Scherzer. I don't know whether Max Scherzer is like the head of like the Players Association, but like apparently Scott Boris is like the Palpatine of. <laughs> Thank you of for the players. <laughs> so true. Scherzer is like the Vader who's just like outdoing <laughs> the bidding of like the the puppeteer in the back. Like Scott Boris is the for for. In Kramer's reference, for, now for those who don't know, who is Scott Boris? <laughs> Scott Boris is like the Uber agent that um, has always gotten the biggest contracts for his for his players. Like he's like the mastermind of some of the concessions that are in contracts, some of the amounts. Um, and so at this for the negotiations, 
I think I believe Max Scherzer is ahead of the Players Association, but Scott Boris is really the person in the back and behind the curtain telling the players to reject all the proposals. You want 100 percent of the salary that's due to you. You cannot take any prorated amount. You cannot take a. 25% off or anything like that. You either go all or nothing. That's from what I've seen from what he's been doing. He, he's he's being his agent contract negotiation right. self <laughs> when really, why does he even have a seat at the table? So, uh, but to, to answer your question though, I, I think Max Scherzer, Max Scherzer is a um, player rep. Okay, but, that might be it. But yeah, the, yeah. the head of the players union is Tony Clark, ex-player. Okay. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. So it's really, it's Tony Clark negotiating with Rob Manfred. And, okay. and why is Scott Boris there? That's <laughs> <Scott> literally... <laughs> Good. <laughs> It's like it's it's so annoying. Like the like the guy has you know he's got a, an an uber attitude and arrogance because of the player the player contracts that he's done over the last like two to three decades and I guess because of his success and how players always want him to get the max value of the contracts that they decide I want him and then I don't know whether they agreed to it but like Scott Boris is saying. You go all or nothing. You get all your salary. You know, the owners make uber amount of money. And I agree with him in that in that aspect that the owners, they don't want to work with or maybe they do. I don't know what the, what the negotiations say, but like Scott Boris is not giving compromise whatsoever. Like it seems like the, the stoppage of Major League Baseball besides the COVID-19 pandemic and impact on our sporting uh, industry is Scott Boris wants to look out for himself in the end. It's not even for the players because if it, if it was for the players, like they would take a, a, a pay cut and do what they love. They're doing like a lot of these players are doing it because they love it, but they make a lot of money. And that's a great point. I hadn't even considered that part of it is that, you know, Scott Boris pulling the strings, but he stands to lose more than anybody yeah. in this whole thing. Absolutely. They, yeah. He's missing a commission. Like, yeah. Yeah. It sucks, yeah, right. dude. It sucks. Like, you know, you, you see um, Major League Baseball players, and I mean, not the ones that make $40 million a year, but a lot of them that are on arbitration deals or they're on rookie contracts. Like, they love doing the shit day in and day out. Like, they enjoy playing in the field they enjoy batting they enjoy traveling like you see with the minor leagues like they enjoy that shit yeah and you see like the people at the lowest are the ones getting cut out like i don't know if they've canceled canceled uh the minor leagues but like i think the minor leagues don't have the teams don't have enough money to pay for the the travel back and forth and there's something like that there's teams that are actually cutting minor leaguers so that they don't have to pay them that's right and that's just that's right. ridiculous i get that the when all is said and done, the less of a season there is, the lo- the owners are the big losers, obviously. And even when it comes down to these negotiations, I'm sure you've heard this before. It's millionaires versus billionaires. Like, yeah. <clears throat> but you're right. It's it's the 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 not guaranteed contracts making less than a hundred thousand a year yeah. that are suffering the most. It's awful. Like, you know. And again, back to back to the fan aspect of it. The fans, even if like let's say let's say they are able to bring back Major League Baseball, and I, in the state of Texas, they'd probably be selling out fifty thousand people in the seats. I would imagine by tomorrow, I, probably. I don't, I don't know exactly, <laughs> but I think yeah, they're 
they're oh, they already opened up that you can have 25 percent or, or a third percent wow. of like fans in the stadium like texas has already yeah. determined that those those fans want to be at a game you know if you if you plan on going to a baseball game during a pandemic you know regardless of the state you love the sport enough that you're willing to take that risk. Like you crave the sport <laughs> enough. Yeah. You crave the sport enough to go do it. And the fact that these sides can't come to an agreement and make it viable for the fans to be able to see their favorite sports teams play. Like, you know, for a lot of baseball fans, their favorite sports teams are their favorite sports teams. It's not the favorite sports team in in the in the industry, in the league. Like it's the I'm a Yankees fan, man, you fan, blah, blah, blah. But like you're a Yankees fan, you're a Rangers fan, Giants fan, but I'm pretty sure you'll probably put the Yankees above all of them, right? Oh, the Yankees are my number one of one. Yeah. 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 So like Gi- Giants are very slightly behind, but I mean, yeah. I'm a, I'm a baseball fan first. So yeah. Of course, it's like Yankee fandom is my blood. My uh, great grandfather was teammates with Lou Gehrig at Columbia. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. I yeah. felt that one. <laughs> I felt that one. <laughs> Holy shit. That's really awesome. But like, you're, you know, you're not just a Yankee fan, but you're a baseball fan. And it hurts to not be able to see the product on the field because of lack of negotiation. It's not like there's a work stop. I mean, there's not. it's not like it's a work stoppage due to a bunch of players being infected with COVID-19. Like that, you have to fucking stop. But like... This is just because two sides can't get together. Yeah, this is yeah, exactly. absolutely ridiculous. And not considering anybody except for their pockets. I feel like it first started with, you know, Blake Snell made a, uh, a major comment like, yeah, we want this amount of money to go back and play. Uh, if we got less, it's not worth the risk for, you know, we're the ones on the field playing. We're the ones at risk for being around other people. So it's not worth the risk for mm. this much percentage of our actual pay. And I was put off by that when when I first heard it. But now, after all this other stuff has happened, I'm like, no, okay, he has a point. Like, I can get on board with that. But it's almost devolved from that into just give me my money. <laughs> essentially. Essentially. You know, I there there's such a huge difference between American sports and, like, sports outside. Or, you know, just the approach, regardless of the sport that it is, the just approach of how to do it. Um the Bundesliga, which is the uh, the soccer league in, in Germany, they started back. La Liga started back. The Premier League in England is going to mm-hmm. start back in a couple weeks. And, and the Italian League just started. But um, I believe outside of England that the players are taking a pay cut to 10, 15 percent. It depends on the team and it depends on the league. But I believe that Barcelona in Spain, they were taking up to 30 percent of a pay cut just to be able to be put out there and you know the the crazy thing about i'm sorry the crazy thing about that is that this shit in 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 the u.s is in baseball it's not even COVID 19 like this is just negotiation like right. over there like in spain the hotbed of like <laughs> european COVID 19 pandemic like right. they're able to say no fans in the stadium we'll take a like 25 to 30 percent pay cut and we will go out and play the remaining games of the season like that shit is ridiculous so of baseball yeah in well, comparison <laughs> you 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 brought up an interesting point and i don't know this um because you said it's on a team by team basis. Do they have player unions in the European leagues? Oh, you know what? I don't. I actually don't think so. Th- that's the difference. They might not. If if each team could make their own determinations of what they're going to put out on the field and what they're yeah. going to pay their players, and and the players can agree individually, either it's worth it for me or it's not worth it for me. Yeah, we could get to a point where we have some product on the field 
but because it's unilateral across the board yeah. with what, 25 times 30 team uh, people, that that's that's where it becomes, okay, it has to be perfect and it's not perfect. Yeah. You know, now, now, that, you, now that you brought that up, I'm thinking about the difference between the, the sports um, in different countries and in the U.S., a team plays, I mean, a player plays for the team, right? It's not community based, mm-hmm. right? In terms of all the soccer teams out there, like Real Madrid, Barcelona, there's a sense of community and the players have taken pay cuts. So the community will be able to watch their, watch their uh, team play. Because most of it is like, if you're a Manchester United fan or a Manchester City fan, Real Madrid, uh, AC Milan, those communities love to see the teams. Like they, they allege themselves to the team, and the team alleges themselves to the community around them. I can't say that about like American sports. You don't really do that unless like you grew up rooting for that team. Maybe you'll find in Canadians fans that might, that might be it. Like you don't see that much, um, you know, care about the community around you because players move, they go place a place b like they they go around and they move around to different teams that there is no sense of this is my community and i'm gonna if i want to take a pay cut to make sure that they're able to see a finished product on the field then i'll do that you don't see that shit here that's true i think that 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 pretty much went away with free agency probably going back er you know an era ago um it you're right it used to be you live and die with the players on your team. You, you don't just root for the laundry. You root for the people. And I'm, I'm quoting Don LaGreca there using <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, I just want to give credit where credit is due. But, uh, but yeah, you, you're like, you can root for the player or you can root for the logo. Um, but it's, it's, it's so sporadic. It's so up in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, basketball, even more so. It's so much easier to become a fan of a player because a player can be so stand out in basketball. Right. Whereas, it, like, I'm just going to follow that player. I don't have a favorite team. Like, uh, that is, I think you're right. That is more of an American thing. It's got to be. Like, you know, you see, and I think you're right with the free agency, but you don't see in baseball or basketball that – you know, the hometown kid ends up being drafted by the organization and plays their entire life for the organization is like widely revered by the fans. Like you don't oversee that. Like Derek Jeter might be like the one Yankee fan that we know that Yankee player that grew up as a fan and end up playing for like his boyhood club, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, Alex Rodriguez is like, okay, well we got this guy from Texas and he plays for the Yankees. There's no sense of community. He's actually a Mets fan (laughs) and he was going to be traded to the Red Sox, but he didn't want to, but anyway, um, you know, there's no sense of community. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's, you know, you look at the the farm system of Major League Baseball. You see it for like the soccer club. Maybe the soccer, you know what, the soccer, it might be on the on a sporting basis, but uh, soccer clubs have academies where they're able to get young players around the area and they harness and harvest the the players and the talent and hopefully they play for like the the top club in the system. You don't really find that with the Yankees, mm-hmm. right? I mean, baseball in general because baseball in general you have scouts that go all around the world and find the best players. You find players from Japan, you find players from Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Cuba, blah blah blah. And when they come to the Yankees, they're playing for the Yankees. They're not playing for the community around them. They're not playing for New York City. Right, right. You know, and something like LeBron, like 
LeBron might be one of the last hometown guys that we remember because, like, he was an Akron kid that played for his hometown team. Like, he generally cares about the community. He, he wanted to win. He took the opportunity to get together with his buds, get some championships yeah. under his belt, and then he went back to his community right. to say, I'm still going to give you a championship. Like, right, <laughs> right. That's, you know, that might be one of the rare cases, but, like, in terms of, like, what's going on with Major League Baseball, I think that the players, especially with the, the uber value of contracts nowadays they have no sense of community around them because if they did if they really cared about the fans they would say scott boris you stay out of this you're mm-hmm. an agent don't don't bring your two cents into this we want to do this for the fans because that's who pays their contracts at the end of the day it right. comes from ticket gate receipts it comes from the food the concessions the the marketing the merchandising like every the player jerseys all that stuff and that's where this comes from that's what the the owners put out this whole thing about if we put a product on the field without fans, we're losing 40% of our revenue. And that's where all this prorated <laughs> bullshit has started coming from. So it's absolutely crazy, man. Um, Christian, do you know how much, do you know what time we're, I can't see the, Oh, uh, an hour and four minutes. All right. Oh we'll, damn. We already hit an hour. Probably like, we'll probably just do it like another five minutes. That's, that's cool. All right. Perfect. Um, did you have any other like, <clears throat> topic? uh, ju- well, just a, a quick, uh, fascinating uh, baseball story. Okay. Um, so without sports, I've been able to like kind of spend time digging deeper into like baseball has such a rich history, like that it recorded history. It was like, it was True. the thing that, you know, just like anything else that happened in this country for a hundred years. Um, so I've been finding really cool stories and there's, there's this one thing, how baseball shifting literally with uh, the defensive shift that's becoming popular. So kind of popularized by uh, Joe Madden more recently, but now like all teams are doing it. Um, I read this really interesting article about the creation of that defensive shift and so to speak. But, you know, baseball always prides itself on its unwritten rules. So it's not necessarily written True. somewhere, True. but it's kind of like, well, we're going to do it and then see if there's any outcry of, well, you can't do that or, well, it doesn't say you can't do that. And that's kind of where the shift came from. So there was a D a college D3 school uh, that in like the 70s that were just so awful. They were in last place for like five <laughs> years in a row uh, and they had the same manager. <clears throat> so he didn't have the proper defensive talent to put a good team on the field. So he started experimenting with kind of like a zone defense, so to speak, where he had floaters, where he'll have one deep center fielder on the warning track, bring two uh, short fielders in that are almost like, so you have six infielders. Yeah, yeah, okay. Got Basically, it. he's going to play to the strengths of each batter. And <laughs> since there's no un, no written rule about, uh, you know, zoning of players on the field that you can literally clump however many players you want mm-hmm. in any area on the field. And that's where they started to get the idea from, well, wow. you know, just because he's a third baseman doesn't mean he has to play on the left side of the field. Let's kick him over to the right side, play a short <laughs> outfield, and now we have three infielders in the place where the guy's going to actually hit the ball. And it was just genius. So, 
the, the, the funniest thing is it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's funny. I wasn't expecting that. Right, right. I, I read the whole article and I'm like, oh, okay, this is he, he turned the team around, they won the championship. No, they sucked. And, <laughs> and it and they just sat on it for 30 more years until Joe Madden's like, wait, I can move players around. Let's play the percentages. Yeah. And, and then funny. it started to work. That's pretty clever. <laughs> but but so uh, so I'm a silver linings guy. I I I don't have my sport that I love and that yeah. I want to watch, so I'm going to find ways to entertain myself in baseball. That's really funny. <laughs> That's really funny. You know, like, I'm listening to what you said and uh, I'm, like, I'm confirming, like, you know, the unwritten rules, baseball probably has to have the most out of, like, all sports out there because it's like, you can manipulate all that you want. If it's not written there, you can do whatever you want. Like, Take for instance, like you said about the shift, right? Maybe this came from that D three school in the in the seventies. If you have a first, if you have a batter that always pulls like to the right side of the field, why have a normal like infield, you know, um, fielding place for those players? Like, why not have three of them on the right side? And if and if that batter pushes one to left, you know, left infield, then. Okay, then maybe it's caught, maybe it's not. But like the shift is, it's interesting because there, there there's so many unwritten rules and there's so much strategy in terms of how to be able to get a winning result that they just they just take it however far that they that they can, yeah. you know. And hopefully they get a good result. The unfortunate part of that story is like there was no good result that came from the team, but not that. Well, isn't it always like that? The pioneer really doesn't benefit from the spoils right (laughs) no that's true i mean you you look at all the all the creators of certain uh sports where uh naismith made basketball and i think has the lowest career winning percentage at the university of kansas i I didn't know that yeah i believe so yeah yeah, yeah. um the english created football and they've only won one world cup and germany's won four brazil's won five (laughs) like the the people that make it and that's it you know what that's a genius of like sports you see something that has been created and you say how can i improve that where you look at baseball and before babe ruth was around it was like um tony la russa in the 80s was small ball you know like hopefully you get a hit you get the first base you steal a base from second and two second and if there's a hit by the subsequent batter then you score a run right or like bunt singles and sacrifice bunts and all that shit and then when babe ruth came around he's like you know what i'm just gonna try and smack it out of the park i was a former pitcher but like i have some pop and if there's a short porch and right i'm gonna take advantage of that yeah, exploit it and he yeah he babe ruth in 1920 or 1921 he hit 59 home runs and he hit more home runs than 28 other baseball teams yes it's that's ridiculous. one of my favorite stats in baseball it's crazy it's <laughs> it's crazy he 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 was he wasn't just a guy who hit a lot of home runs he pioneered Average. the idea of hitting home runs yeah 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 no he would hit 500 plus home runs you know have less than 100 strikeouts average was always like 330 340 something and like 50 something home runs it's it's crazy which, which is why I think if we can get a product back on the field, we're so worried about popularity. We're so worried about image. We're so worried about how to speed up the game. I think we got away from small ball like you were just talking about. Baseball has become strikeout or home run. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's what's causing it to drag and be boring. Yes, we love to see home runs. We love to see big, exciting plays. We like to see high scoring. Um, I mean, I love pitching duels as well, but yeah. like it's got to be intense. It's got to be tight. But <clears throat> small ball means there's more action. So it's so funny with the shift, players hit into the shift 
because of their mindset. They're not willing to adjust. Mark Teixeira quoted one time, I'm paid to hit home runs, not to hit a single. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, do you want to, you know, bat 200, 220 and hit 35 home runs, 40 home runs? Or do you want to have a 450 batting average? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. what's going to be a more exciting product? You know, so maybe that's the thing that's going to save baseball if we can get back on the field. Just more action, more exciting sportsmanship. I don't know. I'm thinking about... Uh I can't remember. I think it was Ichiro who like admitted I could hit more more home mm-hmm. runs if yeah. I wanted to, right? Yeah. Like he would Ichiro in his prime would hit like two twenty two hundred twenty hits a year, and mm-hmm. like if he wanted to have ten home runs, he could do it. But like that's not what he did. He cranked him out in batting practice just to yeah. put on a show. <laughs> He's and, like I could do this, and then and then he would lay down like drag bunts in the game. You know? <laughs> <laughs> And beat it out. Oh man! You look at you know you you look at all the all the stats and you see yeah we live on home runs because of probably the home run race. But um, I can't remember what manager it was. It was either John McGraw, or Sparky, and it was one of them that said to the players like, "Don't hit home runs. You're killing our rally." Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. that's like sack bunt, sack fly, like stealing bases. Like you're killing the action if you hit a home run. Like now Momentum. we have to start from scratch. Yeah. When you, when you have a player in scoring position. The pitcher's more likely to fuck up. Yeah. But if it's empty bases every time, he can concentrate and bear down. And then you have that less of a chance to hit your home run. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, on a last note, I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna bring up like the opposite of Ichiro is Adam Dunn. Yes. Right? Yes. So like Ichiro would get 220 hits a year. His OBP would be like 400 because of all the hits that he got. Maybe he took some walks, but like his slugging would be like 300 or 400 something. Adam Dunn was consistently like a 400 on OBP. And people, I don't even know if people look at like the OBP anymore because it's like Adam Dunn would get 40 home runs and he would always be like a 260, 270 hitter, which was good for him. He was very consistent at doing that. But when he got to Chicago, he hit like 35 home runs in the year, but he struck out so much and he had no other hits that like his OBP was probably like a 296. Yeah. Not like I wish was, I could make that it up. It was strikeout or home run like yeah. essential. Yeah. Which you're right. They, nobody looks at on-base percentage no. anymore. No one really even looks at uh batting average anymore. It's OPS. Yeah. It's on-base plus slugging is the main stat to see what kind of offensive weapon you are. And that's why the home run is more valued. Strikeouts used to be a sin and now it's like, well, we'll trade you know, three strikeouts a game if you hit a home run every fourth at bat. You know, it's yeah, it's weird. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. Yeah, one of one of my uh, one of one of my favorite players that I know I always get shit on for it has has always been uh, Barry Bonds. Like, yeah. I justifiably I get shit on it for it, but like one of my favorite players is Barry Bonds because um, me and me and Luna have gone through the crazy achievements of Barry Bonds, like being one of the rare players to be intentionally walk with bases loaded. Like, I think yeah. Luna, I think Luna loves that one. But like, my favorite was that um, Barry Bonds in his in his later years, which was his juiced up prime, he was <laughs> thirty seven or thirty eight years old, having five hundred on base percentage. Yeah. Like the pitcher would rather not pitch to him then pitch to him and like he's just going to hit it out of the park and like his his OBP was like 500 or 400 something and slugging was like 700 800 because he never had like many plate appearances like it was always either a walk or like him hitting it out of the park it's absolutely crazy 
he got to a point where it was literally just you know what's gonna happen <laughs> and it's like love or hate the guy it's yeah. like okay here we go again think about it you know uh yankee stadium now has the judges chambers in in, in right field right right think about when when bonds was playing you had canoes outside just waiting AT&T for Park. Ball. Yeah, McCovey Cove. Yeah, exactly. Yep. McCovey Cove. Because that's where he's going to hit it. Like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, man. You, I have no idea where, where baseball is going to go. Um, who knows? This season. God dang. Like, we're, you know, give it one more month. We're at the All-Star break. So, like, <laughs> they, they got to come up with something really quick and, like, for it to be ratif- agreed and ratified upon. I don't know, man. It's... It, it sucks right now. Like, you have to be pretty diverse with your sports to, like, have some form of entertainment if you're going to watch sports right now. Like, there's no football. College football, is, I guess, is, like, probable. Baseball is, like, improbable. NFL looks like it's on the go. But, like, who knows? It's just lost opportunity. <laughs> like, that's, that's, what, that's how you sum up to this year's baseball season, lost opportunity. <laughs> if, you had to, um, if you had to summarize 2020 as a sports team, who would it be? The Cleveland Browns from 15 <laughs> years ago, 10 years ago, <laughs> five years ago. Yeah, yeah, the Cleveland Browns. The 62 Browns. Mets. It might be. Oh, the wow. 60, just finding a new way to like lose every day. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> All right. Um, Craig, thank you so much for being on the show, yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Look, I don't want to overstate, but. Um, I'm going to say the single greatest podcast hour in history. Right? Right? I, I don't <laughs> because <know>. of Craig. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think we'll title this episode the 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 Craig Side and Schwartz episode. <laughs> I'm so honored. It's Thank you. Self-titled. <laughs> Wait for my next album to drop. All right. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to The World According to Walker. This has been Javon Craig. And uh, thank you so much for listening.